fast The council waits for you The Pharisees and priests are here for you Ah, gentlemen You know why we are here We've not much time And quite a problem here. Listen to that howling mob of blockheads in the street. A trick or two with lepers, and the whole town's on its feet. For him, Jesus is cool. We dare not leave him to his own devices. His half-witted fans will get out of control. But how can we stop him? His glamour increases by leaps every minute. He's top of the pole. I see bad things arising. The crowd crowning king, which the Romans would ban. I see blood and destruction are because of one man blood and destruction because of one man because 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 of one man our elimination because of one man because 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 of one cause of one cause of one man what can we do about this Jesus mania how do we deal with the carpenter king where do we start with a man who is bigger than John was when The stakes we are gambling are frighteningly high. We must crush him completely. So like John before him, this Jesus must die. For the sake of the nation, this Jesus must die. Must die, must die, this Jesus must die. So like John before him, this Jesus must die. Must die, must die, this Jesus must, Jesus must, Jesus must That is from Jesus Christ Superstar by Andrew Lloyd Webber and uh, Tim Rice. And um, it uh, goes back to um, 1969. I remember listening to it in a fraternity house as a new pledge uh, with some rather serious uh, brothers. And um, it made an impression even then. And the title of the... um, 
cast is psychosis. And it's an attempt to really understand the kind of uh, mammoth group uh, hypnosis. And I would go so far as to say psychosis that surrounds the human condition individually and collectively and uh, then try to look at, uh, you know, is there some kind of antidote to psychosis, which is defined as a break with reality. When people have a psychotic break, it means that they have a major uh, and definite break with reality in its most... um, 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 reality in its most obvious um, expression. And um, I was saying to... um, Mary, that the whole NFL kneeling um, phenomenon has the feeling of a psychosis. And she said, no, no, don't say psychosis. You mean kind of a group hypnosis or there's kind of a collective groupthink kind of a spell that is cast by a narrative. Uh, Again, I'm not for the narrative, but many are. Millions would say that they're for the narrative. It's really not whether you're for or against it. It's the fact that a narrative sort of descends out of seemingly nowhere and takes over um, everyone from players on a field to David Duchovny and, um, you know, that wonderful star, uh, Gillian Anderson, for uh, the X-Files. And all of a sudden, everybody is doing something that they weren't doing a week before. Now, um, what I had gone on to say, I had described to Mary the um, impression one has when one looks at the history of the Church of England architecture-wise from between about 1845 or 50 to about 1880 as a psychosis. And she said, no, no, please don't use that word. And I decided to think about that. And what do I think of that objection? It's a very, very strong word. We think of the uh, Norman Bates, you know, in Psycho. He really does honestly believe that he is his mother. That is a psychosis and he acts on the psychosis. Uh, and the psychosis is is strengthened by its very disjuncture with the reality, which it is not in touch with. Um, and um, But then I thought, well, you know, how else do you explain, um, even now as we look at it, you have, let's say you have 10, 11,000 parish churches in uh, England, in uh, England uh, and uh, basically England and Wales, but England. And within 20 years, they are... Of the 10,000, 9,700 are gone in uh, to by so-called church restorers and uh, completely torn out. Everything that's in them is torn out. Most of the things are thrown away and everything is rearranged to look different. What was in 1840 a completely and utterly reformed Protestant interior with the primacy of the word and Holy Communion celebrated four times a year and uh, the chancel basically being de facto shut off with sort of yellow tape um, almost the entire year except four times a year the principal feasts and it's entirely a preaching ministry that does very well in many ways. Um, within 25 years, every single one of those churches, the pulpit has been taken down, torn out, ripped up, replaced, put in a different place. Uh, The chancel has become the center of the church. The table, which was sort of dusty and had no cross and no flowers and no nothing on it except four times a year, um, and even then no cross, uh, and tapers all right from the prayer book, but you then, uh, you have an altar and a chancel and a choir, whereas before you had a... um, you had no no choir. You had a kind of community choir in the West Gallery, and you have uh, you had a minister, and you had a three-decker pulpit, and you had the service of morning prayer, hopefully a decent sermon. 
Um, but that happens in 30 years. And now the psychosis is when you look back upon it now because the so-called winners liturgically or ecclesiastically were so completely, I mean, 9,700 parishes out of 10,000. I mean, that's a very high number. And of the 300 left, only really about 60 were untouched. And those were mainly because they were, they were no longer used. They were, like, they were set aside in favor of a new church closer to where the population was at the time in the village or the town. And so um, you, 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 you look back on it now, and no one's ever heard of this. I mean, Episcopalians that I know today don't realize that until 1880, uh, and even really until much later than that, in ethos, the uh, Anglican Church worldwide, and certainly in its home, was um, completely Protestant. I mean, explicitly, legally, self-consciously, formally, distinctly Protestant. I mean, you couldn't even get a, get instituted as a rector un, unless you uh, heard the archdeacon read the 39 articles and publicly swear in front of your entire new congregation that you believed every single one of them. I mean, good grief, 39, not four. You know, not six, not the Lambeth quadrilateral, but 39. And so you, um, and yet now you look back, no one knows this. I mean, the, the, these pictures of these churches have been suppressed. You, I have to work very hard to find them. Uh, I've been to a lot of these churches with Mary directly, personally, and I've seen them and photographed them. So thank God I've got that. And my instincts always told me that something was wrong. But you have, in a way, kind of a group psychosis of a mild sort, which because um, there's a break with reality. No one today, very, 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 very few people in the Anglican communion worldwide, except some in Africa and a few sort of oddballs like myself, realize that it was once completely different. Uh, visually uh, and in uh, approach and in formal uh, service and in every aspect from uh, clothing to music to um, to the way service was conducted to where it was conducted and how it was conducted and what it was meant to be to be about uh, and so you say to yourself well how could it happen that this information was so completely suppressed so that it acts as if it's a group psychosis even if you show these pictures to people I mean that they may say oh I didn't know that if they're open-minded they'll say well that's interesting. That's a new arrow in my quiver. Usually what they'll do is act as if they've never see, seen them. I mean, simply say, well, I just refuse to acknowledge that. I, I, I won't. I'm not going to accept that. But whatever it is, it's a break with the reality because the reality is entirely different. It's sort of like everything you were taught, you know, in whatever way you were taught, the Episcopal Church, whatever, turns out to have been 95% of factually in error. It reflected a certain view of a certain group of people as of 19... You know, um, seventy-nine. Uh, basically, three people that that had powerful personalities who were from formerly um, free church or evangelical backgrounds and didn't like what they came from and were very smart and proceeded to completely um, upend the interpretation, let alone the reality. So, what you see is not what it is. I mean, it's like looking at someone you love and realizing, oh my gosh. Now, let me talk a little bit more about the implications of this. Let's imagine it has to do with kind of illusions that usually they're called narratives. You know. No, I, I was um, the New York Times on the night that the president got elected. I was uh, just noticing that the New York Times were saying until nine o'clock that night, the New York Times up to the minute updated blog poll uh, was saying that um, the man who actually won had an 81 percent chance of losing 81 percent until nine o'clock that night. I mean, so, so you don't have to call that a psychosis, but you have to call it 
a kind of a break with reality. There was, it wasn't, so you say, you know, and now you see people having a narrative about this or that that is simply not the case. I mean, every time I read about the statues, I remember um, 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 uh, the stories of Irvin S. Cobb, I mean, which are so re redemptively reconciling between black and white and former Confederate and former uh, uh, federal um, veterans that, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable the degree of costly reconciliation that is involved between these two groups. It's not based upon deletion. It's based upon truly embrace, to use Miroslav Fulf's, does he believe it? It's, it's based upon uh, the embrace of the other, not the deletion or the extinction of the memories of the other. And um, I look at covers of the Saturday Evening Post from the 1940s and, uh, in relationship to this question, or I was watching Damn Yankees the other day from 1959, and I think that's more like from 1957, that musical of 58, and there are, there are black prominently uh, placed um, black athletes in the, and it's 1958. I mean, it's long before, you know, the, a, a real um, proper historic legal change was um, made manifest through Jackie Robinson and others, great pioneers. But even back in the 50s, they're trying to come to terms with racial issues in professional sports. And when you see it, it doesn't, doesn't fit the narrative. It's supposed to be completely a different kind of thing. So what happens is, you, I guess what I'm saying is that when these illusions come over you and you kind of actually accept them and you're really not in touch with reality, and then terrible things happen. Let me give you a, a, a personal example to the point. That is an individual example. There is a story by um, Agatha Christie called Witness for the Prosecution, and it was made into a movie in 1958 like, uh, or 9 or something with Charles Lawton and um, Marlena Dietrich and Tyrone Power. And it's very, very powerful. And it was remade. The reason it's current is it was remade and shown last Christmas, 2016. It was shown, I think, on the BBC as one of the Christmas offerings. A, a new but still um, accurate, uh, basically um, true to the original source, more or less, version of Witness for the Prosecution. And it's a very brilliant story. And in the story... Um, the whole thing turns on a typical, but in this case, extremely deft and in some ways scalding um, turnaround by which everything you thought about the two leads, the man accused of a murder and the um, uh, woman who hates him, everything that you um, thought is in the last seven minutes of the movie um, reversed. I mean, everything you thought about everyone in the movie or the story um, was untrue because you don't know something that comes out. It's typical Agatha Christie, but in this case, it's crystalline. It's not sort of their four possible, you know, uh, culprits and, and you go through one, two, three, four until you get to the fourth and then she surprises you more. It's almost like a technique she has or a gimmick, but not in Witness for the Prosecution. It's a classic form of it in which um, you... you you, you sense that something may not be right, and it turns out that everything that you have been presented is completely the opposite of what you think it was. And the same goes in this new version of it, which I have yet to see, but I know it's accurate to the story, and I think it adds even one worse element to it that's sort of the... 2016 little gibbet to make it even more so that way. So what we're saying is that everything you thought about a person, now isn't this true? I mean, have you ever had that experience?
I mean, have you ever known someone who you thought very highly of and you trusted and you thought was absolutely fantastic, and then you actually found out that everything that they had told you was a lie, uh, designed to get something from you in some way and then cast you aside, and that you were, in fact, the victim of a a radical conspiracy based upon a kind of an act, a theatrical act. And uh, now that may have never happened to you. It's happened to me a couple times in which I was um, led on by someone who knew what they were doing, maybe a group of people who knew what they were doing, and then I was um, suddenly dropped out of an airplane when I got to 10,000 feet, and I said, what? You know, you, a tu brute, you know, you? Uh, and, and to die when you found out that everything you thought was true, right, and good, and noble was actually deceitful, malicious, cruel, selfish, and um, uh, brutal and manipulative and uh, profoundly hateful towards your person. I mean, that's just the worst thing that can happen. So, um, Agatha Christie, um, you know, I've experienced this. I, I know about this. This is something that I'm close to, this material. So I guess I'm trying to say, um, think a little bit about the uh, epistemological problem of life. What you see is, in fact, sometimes not what you get. That's because the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil, there are a lot of forces in this world that are trying to convince us of things that they want us to believe. And we don't realize that we're the victims. I saw this in the Internet recently when I looked up something, just a Google thing that was there, their usual weekly icon thing or whatever, and suddenly it came on because I pressed the wrong button, and what they were advertising was, in fact, something that was really quite extraordinarily definite. And um, uh, I said, oh my gosh, that's what, that's what that is about. That, how unusual. They're really trying to get me to think something that I wouldn't naturally think. And they're being very subtle about it. And they're using an approach that touches maybe billions, potentially billions of people. And I said, oh my gosh, this is all really kind of a gigantic kind of a, you know, I, I can become the victim of a kind of unexpected and, and naive psychosis in which I begin to think something is true that it's not, as in um, witness for the prosecution or as in any narrative you want to name. And it's really important. There's an element of psychosis and it, it hits marriages. It hits, um, you know, Daphne de Maurier's story. Isn't it Daphne de Maurier? Um, her story, uh, Jamaica Inn, when the clergyman, the very fine and lovely uncle or whatever it is, clergyman who seems so good, turns out to be a smuggler, but not in the good sense. He turns out to be a, a true rogue, a villain, a villainous person in sheep's clothing. Well, I guess that's what we're talking about. So where do we get out of it? Well, we get out of it first by, as Paula White says, you have to, you have to, you have to, you have to diagnose where you went wrong. Uh, Gerald Hurd said, if you've lost God, go back. If you, if you don't have God, go back to where you lost him. Go back to where the psychosis first began to affect you. You have to often go back to your youth or to your younger years when you began to accept something that you now see was kind of a wooden nickel, not true, a slug. And then you begin to sort of go back then and rebuild your trust network. And in the story of Christ, you see it in this most dramatic possible form. Everything about him is not the Messiah. And yet he is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. Uh, that's Monty Python, Life of Brian. But he really is. I mean, everything about him that you think he can't possibly be. And this is why he frightens the Pharisees and the, um, and the temple leaders at the beginning of the 
song I played you, because they've got to suppress this. this. He's opening up the lie. He's showing that the truth is not what we want you to believe it is. And the power of what I'm going to play you now, the very famous Palm Sunday opening by Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, uh, this is the power of when you finally realize that um, God is enshrined in the loser or in the uh, unexpected truth, that God is often there in the place where you're least likely to find him, the little boy who says the emperor has no clothes, or the uh, prophet who sees something that no one else sees but is actually present, the uh, painter, the artist who sees something that no one else sees but you come to find out is absolutely the essence of all that is going on, or a picture of the church which finally realizes that at one point the Anglican church really did get it more or less together, and John Wesley really did exist, and George Whitfield really did, George Whitfield really did uh, make a change, but it's been suppressed and hidden, and all of a sudden the uh, man on the donkey, I was um, in, uh, in um, uh, Northern Ireland, and uh, I saw the Orange Order in a parade, and I'd been taught to think that the Orange Order were the uh, demons of the universe, you know, the devils of the world, intolerant sectarians, and as the, uh, in Belfast, as the parade ended, at the very end of the parade, I saw Christ riding on the donkey, and I realized that, oh my gosh, I was wrong. God was actually present uh, with those parading, and his donkey came, and we heard these words, and it made quite a difference. Thanks so much. We anticipate a riot, this common crowd is much too loud. Tell the mob who sing your song that they are fools and they are wrong. They are a curse, they should disperse. Moaning at the crowd Nothing can be done to stop the shouting If every tongue was still, the noise would still continue The rocks and stones themselves would start to sing Won't you fall? 